Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. It's the Food Focus podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling, a special Christmas or holiday edition, if you will, of the Food Focus podcast. Although not many holiday themes that we'll be discussing, we'll be looking ahead to a few of the food trends, possible food trends of 2017, and we'll talk about an IHOP and Applebee's mashup restaurant. But first, Darden Restaurants reported their fiscal year 2017 second quarter earnings this week, meeting analyst expectations almost exactly. They reported last Tuesday, December 20th, and their second quarter adjusted earnings came in at 64 cents per share, meeting analyst expectations of also 64 cents per share. That's an 18.5% increase in earnings per share year over year. Revenues came in right about where analyst expectations were as well, and it seems like they're having good success across the board, even though a lot of the headlines credited Darden's overall success to Olive Garden. Yeah, that's exactly right. So a little bit about Darden for those who aren't regular podcast listeners. Darden Restaurants actually owns several restaurant brands, Olive Garden being the biggest one and one we will dive into for sure for this segment of the Retail Focus. But they also own Longhorn Steakhouses, 65 Yard Houses, 54 Capital Grills, 37 Bahama Breezes, 40 Season 52s, and 16 Eddie Vs. But if you look at those numbers, that means that 53% of their total units are Olive Garden restaurants. If you do go back to the earnings for this quarter, you see that revenue overall did increase 2.1% on a year-over-year basis. So this is a really good sign for the company. But if you do look again at the majority of their holdings within Olive Gardens, you see that the overall same-store sales increases of 1.7% for the company as a a whole were mostly brought up by positive increases with the Olive Garden units. You saw same store sales, which we will talk about a little bit later, come in at 2.6% for Olive Garden. And it did look as though they benefited from the increase in the never ending pasta passes, which we had talked about on a previous edition of the podcast. Those endless pasta passes were for seven weeks and they sold out in what management said was actually less than a second. We had figured the pasta passes generate about $2.1 million in revenue and you can really see that hit the bottom line this quarter for Olive Garden. You see the full year guidance for the company. They also reaffirmed their full year same store sales outlook. One to 2% is what they're projecting for the rest of the year. Again, they're just in their second fiscal quarter for their 2017. And it looks as though they are going to be seeing sales increase by about the same margin between 1.7 and 2.7% as they are looking to open between 24 and 28 new locations. Yeah, they'll see a slight bump in total sales because of those new locations. They're looking at those 24 to 28 new restaurants, and that's up against their holdings, which number nearly 1,500 overall. So just a slight increase in the number of actual locations. They expect 
most of their sales increase to be driven by same-store sales. And as I mentioned earlier, a lot of news outlets really hopped on the fact that Olive Garden same-store sales were up 2.6%. A lot of that coming from the never-ending pasta passes, which management talked about selling out in less than one second. And indeed, that podcast where we were talking about the never-ending pasta passes, we tried to get in there and buy some while the podcast was recording, and it didn't work out for us. But the growth just wasn't in Olive Garden. In fact, you see good same-store sales across the board for Olive Garden's offerings. You see same-store sales growth of 2 to 3% for some of their other concepts. You know, most people know what an Olive Garden is or what a Longhorn Steakhouse is. They also hold Yard House, which is an upscale burger-based restaurant with a massive tap beer selection. They have Bahama Breeze, which is a mid-priced Caribbean restaurant theme. Seasons 52, which is actually one of the only concepts that saw negative same-store sales growth, is a wine bar and grill. And then they have what they consider fine dining or their fine dining segment with Capital Grill and Eddie V's, both of whom saw solid same-store sales increases. So out of all of their holdings, Longhorn Steakhouse saw same-store sales increase of 0.1%, which isn't very much, but it keeps a trend of 15 consecutive quarters of unit growth going. The Longhorn segment profit was 14.4%, and they boasted of better adjusted margins. The adjusted margins omitted rent increases and tax expense from their 2016 real estate transactions. So Longhorn keeps positive same-store sales going, and what's more, they mentioned that Longhorn same-store sales were up by several basis points over industry competitors in the steakhouse segment. You look at Bahama Breeze, their same-store sales went up 2.6%, Yardhouse 0.7%, Capital Grill 1.2%, and Eddie V's 2.7%. Small sample size on some of those, but still, you're seeing more drivers for growth beyond Olive Garden, and I think that's where Darden Restaurants as a whole is seeing a lot of success because they're not putting all their eggs just in the Olive Garden basket. One of the things that they were really bullish on during this earnings release was the fact that they saw a growth of 21% in their Olive Garden to go program, which matches nicely with what we've been talking about since this summer. People choosing to place to go orders at a lot of restaurants, then stay at the restaurant and experience the restaurant there. And it's one of the main reasons why they saw their fifth consecutive quarter of same store sales growth of 2% or more, because they've seen 50% growth on their Olive Garden to go program on a three-year basis. And Leighton, they credited using some data insights to get a pretty good feel of what their consumers want. And it seems to be helping both top and bottom lines. Yeah, it appears as though listening to the earnings call that they really have been listening to their operations managers. So the managers at each individual location, but they've been using analytics too to really try to get what the customers want as they go into an Olive Garden. But as you mentioned, 50% growth on a three-year basis for this really drives home the idea that people want convenience. They want convenience over sitting in the restaurant. But when asked about this, management was a little bit defensive because some analysts were saying that potentially this was the main driver for growth. The idea that people are, are getting orders ahead of time and just picking the food up and then leaving. But management said they are seeing growth and positive results among everything that they do, not just the to-go platform, but also 
people dining in and choosing to stay in the restaurant for a period of time. That is all well and good, but if you do look at the numbers, you're talking about 21% growth, as you mentioned, year over year for the Olive Garden to go program. That does mean that some people are detracting, some people are no longer staying in the restaurants to dine in. However, they still are a fan of Olive Garden cuisine. But if you look a little further into the Olive Garden earnings results, you see that their margins did decrease just slightly. For last year's fiscal year, 2016, on their second quarter, they had gross adjusted margins of 17.6%. This year, the same quarter, 16.8%. And some of the things they pointed to were the results of the stock-based compensation. They said they did not hedge perfectly, meaning that basically the adjustment in stock price, they didn't really factor into the stock-based compensation that they were going to hand out during the quarter. The share price had risen, therefore the cost of the stock-based compensation compensation rose as well. So they were actually headed to beat on the earnings per share side, beat analyst expectations, but instead they just matched expectations. So really this was unfavorable in terms of the company viewpoint, even though it was somewhat favorable for analysts overall. You see a 20 basis points of unfavorability in restaurant labor. About 50% of this was the stock-based compensation. The other 50% due to rising labor costs. And this is something that we should be focused on as they project next year's labor costs to be increasing about 3.5%. So a lot of times you and I, Trent, talk about grocery deflation or deflation at least with the commodity pricing as it pertains to restaurants. But a lot more recently, we keep talking about and seeing labor inflation as a key metric here with these adjusted earnings. You're right. And in fact, Olive Garden mentioned commodity deflation for this latest quarter of 1.3% over the same quarter in the prior year. One of the nice things about Darden restaurants is they tend to spell out individual category growth and also costs in individual categories. Going forward, they see low single-digit inflation over the next six months for most food goods. So you're looking at things like chicken and steak, for example, seeing low single-digit inflation. It's about two, no more than 3%. Wheat products, they said, will remain flat in terms of inflationary pressures on the business. And seafood should be in the mid-single-digit range in terms of inflation. So you're going to see higher input costs from seafood items on the menus at their restaurants than you will some of the other products. But they also spelled out a very clear plan in their quarterly report saying that they looked towards menu adjustments and also execution adjustments as well to keep any inflation from having an impact on their bottom line. But they were pleased to see some of that deflation counteract the labor inflation that they experienced over the last quarter and they're looking at labor inflation of about 3.5 percent over the next year there's a common theme that we've talked about often on the food focus and the idea that there might be a restaurant recession here in 2016 and 2017 and this earnings call from Darden Restaurants suggests that as long as restaurant groups can execute well and be able to compete against newcomers to the market, you can kind of buck the trend of some of the legacy restaurants experiencing negative same-store sales. And that's really where the idea of the restaurant recession comes from, is not 
so much the idea that overall people aren't eating out as much or people aren't ordering food at restaurants as much, but more the fact that legacy restaurants are beginning to shrink in terms of their overall market share. And there's a lot of metrics and that type of thing that haven't yet caught up to some of the newcomers that have entered the market. There are just so many new players in the marketplace to where it doesn't appear as though people are legitimately spending less across the board at restaurants. But Darden is living proof that if you execute well, if you make sure your margins are in check, and also you align your offerings with what the consumers want. In this case, we mentioned the Olive Garden to go program. You can have success quarter over last year's quarter on a consistent basis. We've certainly seen that with Olive Garden and Longhorn Steakhouse overall. Leighton, how did this earnings call affect the stock price for Darden? Darden Restaurants, ticker DRI, was actually largely unchanged after this second quarter report. However, it did trend slightly down for the next couple of days. We're talking about Wednesday and Thursday. It's down around $75 a share currently. And if you look at the one-year time frame, it shows a large improvement. So again, over the past 52 weeks, it's been trending upward. The share price is up from around $58 a share where it was about this time last year. They did recently hit an all-time high of around $77 a share. So that kind of puts it in perspective where Darden is overall as a company. They've been doing very well, executing at a very high level over the past couple of years. But they had faced some criticism. It was actually funny. You mentioned how people had been talking about the restaurant recession. And then you see these largely positive results from a very, very large operator here domestically, at least. A couple of analysts did ask management if they were thinking that the bottom 20 25 to 50% of restaurant operators were bringing down the rest, the larger operators such as Darden Restaurants and a few others we will talk about later in this podcast. But management was very quick to respond and say they are not focused on the smaller competition. They are not focused on anything but their own operations. So that is definitely something that if you're an analyst or if you're an investor for this company that you definitely want to hear. This is a good sign basically saying that Darden Restaurants is focused on what they do not what everyone else is doing. And so they're trying to gain a competitive advantage and focus resources into what they can control. So that's always good for a company going forward. As we move on, we talk about another very large operator here in the United States, this time with IHOP and Applebee's as they are teaming up for a new combo restaurant in the Michigan area. This was announced last Wednesday. The restaurant combination will be housed in Millender Center, which is actually in a downtown part of Detroit. And this is the first for Dine Equity Incorporated, which is the parent company for both IHOP and Applebee's. But it will be owned and operated by a restaurant group that is based in the Michigan area. The restaurant group is TSFR, which has several other holdings in the state of Michigan. And to be honest, if you go and look back at the history of Applebee's in the Detroit area, this franchising group was actually the first to open an Applebee's in the Detroit proper area. And just in 2015. So it's a little surprising to see that Applebee's wasn't actually having a presence in the Detroit area up until so very recently. But if you look at the operator overall, currently they have 66 locations. This gives them a very wide amount of experience and the know-how to effectively pull this off. If we're looking at the blueprints for this location, you're looking at a location that's going to be extremely close to about 12,000 square feet, and it's going to be seating 300. So this is a very large building, and it's going to employ around 100 people. It was this time last week we were just talking 
talking about Portillos and how they are a very large establishment with around 10 to 11,000 square feet. So this is going to be a very large combination building housing both Applebee's and IHOP in one. What's interesting to note is that TSFR actually holds a number of different holdings, not only with Dine Equity Incorporated, the owner of both Applebee's and HiOp, but also with additional FSR and QSR formats. So this gives them a little bit of experience. And the reason I bring up QSR is because when you look at the QSR industry, the history of combo restaurants is not a brief one. The QSR industry has been doing this for quite some time. And I wanted to take a look back at the combo restaurant before we addressed IHOP and Applebee's and their history as they became one under the Dine Equity banner. It's unclear how they're going to form the menu with this iteration, but in the past, popular QSRs include A&W and Long John Silvers. They did this when former owner Yum Brands bought them in late 2002. Of course, Yum Brands holds neither of those brands at this point. Yum Brands around 2005 tried to combine Long John Silvers with a number of its other chains. Combination units started up all around the U.S. and you have a number of different combos out there. Long John Silvers KFC, Long John Silvers Taco Bell. Of course, you have what's often affectionately referred to as the Kentaco or the Kentucky Fried Chicken and Taco Bell combination. And of course, the Kentaco Hut, which includes all three Pizza Hut, Kentucky Fried Chicken and Taco Bell, as well as the combination Taco Bell and Pizza Hut, which is fairly popular within popular culture. But the reason I talk about the menus prior to diving into some of this past is because for Applebee's and IHOP, they have a little bit of a blueprint that's been set out by these locations. Oftentimes, even today, if you go to a combination Pizza Hut and Taco Bell, you'll see a menu that is really the fraction of the traditional size for a freestanding QSR for either one of those businesses. Taco Bell, for example, might not have some menu items because of limited kitchen space. Here you mentioned the square footage for IHOP and Applebee's in this combination restaurant in Detroit, and you're looking at a restaurant that is even larger than each of these two IHOP and Applebee's put together, at least on a traditional scale. So in this circumstance, this is something where they can merge menus without having to trim too much from either menu. When you look at what it can add to the IHOP menu, Applebee's, of course, sells alcoholic drinks, which are high margin items when you're talking about the restaurant industry. That's something that IHOP currently does not offer. Also, Applebee's offers some specialty items, including some higher end items like steak and seafood. And although IHOP has a few customary offerings in those areas, it's not really something they consider themselves to specialize in. Meanwhile, Applebee's, of course, doesn't offer any breakfast food currently outside of fundraisers. They do pancake-based fundraisers on a regular basis. It's always pretty popular in their local markets, but they don't do breakfast on a regular basis. And this is where I IHOP can help. Additionally, you would think, although they haven't said anything to this effect, that this combo IHOP and Applebee's would be serving breakfast all day, which would be a major coup for a restaurant like Applebee's. We've seen how serving breakfast all day has affected the QSR industry positively, and you think that would copy over to the FSR industry as well. So this pilot program, if you will, even though it's not necessarily referred to as a pilot, I think is something that could 
could be repeatable by other franchisees of these two restaurants. And Dine Equity operates largely on the basis of franchisees. Yeah, absolutely. That is really their mission. And ever since they procured Applebee's back in 2007 for about $2.1 billion in an all-cash transaction, this was their mission. So around that time, it was affirmed that Applebee's had around 508 locations that were company-owned. So franchisees did not own or operate. And so this was something they looked at and management really decided that they were no longer going to have company-owned locations. Same with the IHOP location. So back in 2007, there were a few more company-owned IHOP locations than there are today. So now if you look at their overall portfolio, you're looking at around 1,684 IHOP restaurants in the United States and all 50 states. And there's over 2,000 Applebee's in 49 states. But if you look at the Applebee's locations, 100% of those are now franchisee-owned. All but maybe 1% of the IHOP restaurants are also franchisee-owned. So this is one of the things that they came in with, and they thought that they could really mitigate the costs and the risk associated with these locations if they were to let franchisees own them. And this has really paid off. You can see that IHOP overall has been very profitable, especially over the last few years. They offer a dividend that's about a 4.1%, 4.2% yield currently. And there's also a lot of other ways to look at this company, you know, as far as the growth prospects are concerned. A lot of people were assuming that the $2.1 billion price tag was going to be a bit too much for the Applebee's. They took the assumption of around $155 million in debt, but they really turned Applebee's around. They had what they called a brand revitalization, and they really used what they called the power of franchising to turn this restaurant concept around. And you see that with a lot of new advertising campaigns still to this day. And so as of 2000. 15 is when all Applebee's locations were officially franchisee owned and you can really see how it's paid off in turn with the increase in profit and revenue overall. You see that they've also added around 350 Applebee's locations since the 2007 acquisition. So a really a lot to look forward to here and it is curious to see if this combination format works out. Dine Equity was careful to say that they will be looking closely at the results of this and they'll be eager to potentially open another one either with this franchise operator or another one if this pans out the way they hope it will. One of the things that we talked about before coming on the podcast was the fact that there is good market penetration for both IHOP and Applebee's currently. You've got 1,684 IHOP restaurants in the U.S. in all 50 states and over 2,000 Applebee's in 49 states. So you could make the argument that already the market is pretty saturated with these restaurants and maybe too much so to make a concerted push for these combo locations. Because remember, many of these restaurants that are already constructed are very constrained in terms of square footage. They prefer freestanding restaurants versus restaurants that are part of a strip mall or another shopping concept. So because they are freestanding locations, it would be very difficult to add any space to them. And it looks as though for these to work, you'll need at least some additional space, whether it be for the kitchen or the seating area. But where I think this concept could be most beneficial, now they're trying it in downtown Detroit, I think this might be most beneficial in smaller markets. Applebee's and IHOP, neither one of them shy away from markets about 
5,000 to 25,000 in size, but putting a combination restaurant seems like it would be killing two birds with one stone, especially if there's not a lot of competition in that market that already exists. You know, Applebee's has a lot of competition in their segment from Chili's and IHOP, of course, in their segment from Denny's in these type of markets. But if you can put in a two-in-one restaurant, you can really create some brand recognition with those two restaurants together and perhaps drive more traffic than a Denny's could in isolation or than a Chili's could in isolation. So lots to look forward to as far as this combination restaurant is concerned. Now, we might be putting the cart before the horse here. If this location doesn't go as planned or if execution falls through, then obviously it would be negative news for the company. But it is worth trying, and I am excited to see that a franchisee is willing to give it a go and putting these two concepts together where it seems like there are a lot of synergies and also you can diversify a menu to this extent. Absolutely. You know, real estate and development costs have not gone down. They've only gone up. And so to really have this type of undertaking costs a lot of money. It takes a lot of capital to put forth something like this. And so you're talking about a restaurant with over 12,000 square feet, potentially. You're talking about a lot more money. And also, again, they're looking to seat around 300 people. They have to put people in those seats for this to be profitable. If you're comparing that to a conventional IHOP, you're looking at 185 guest capacity. So a lot of optimism has to be built within this investment. And I am curious to see if this is going to take off and go the direction both the franchisee operator and Dine Equity want it to go. But really, I am curious to see if they keep the Applebee's location open 24 hours like a lot of IHOPs are. This will be something that'll be very interesting to watch because they're not necessarily, or at least we don't know the plans to see whether or not they're going to split these different restaurants up within the location. We do know that they're probably going to use one kitchen and those types of things, but are they going to use just the one menu as you alluded to, or are they going to do something a little different? But we do know that obviously the bar has to shut down at some point in time. So that's something that they're going to definitely have to work around. So moreover, it's a logistical problem, but I am curious to see how this plays out. Well, longtime listeners of the Retail Focus podcast know that we finish every podcast with a segment where we look ahead. And that's actually what our last two stories are about here on the Food Focus podcast is looking ahead towards 2017 and new food trends. We begin with Whole Foods' list of the top 10 food trends for 2017 that they released earlier this month. Didn't have a chance to talk about it on the last Food Focus, but wanted to address it on the final Food Focus of the 2016 year. Each year, Whole Foods releases 10 trends that their so-called trend spotters feel will be big for the next year. These trend spotters are credited with having over 100 years of food industry experience made up largely of buyers and experts. Now, This is the third year that we've found a hard and fast list that's been released in a press release from Whole Foods. So what are some of these 10 trends? Well, this year, they aren't so much product related as they are movement related. There are a couple of items on this list, including flexitarianism, which is the idea that you eat mostly vegetarian or mostly gluten-free, basically, when it is convenient for you, and also mindful meal prep, the latter of which you could argue was big already in 2016. And in fact, when you look at something like flexitarianism, it already is pretty big. 22.8 million Americans consider themselves to be flexitarian versus 7. 
1.3 million vegetarians. That's according to the Washington Post. But what we're going to do is talk about a few of the food products that they mentioned on their list. They included products from byproducts, so things like brewer's yeast, for example, and drained whey from making things like cheese and yogurt. Coconut everything, so coconut beyond just coconut milk and coconut water. Japanese food beyond sushi creative condiments, non-traditional pastas and pasta sources, and also purple foods. And then, Leighton, let's talk about a few of these food items and how they may play into the overall food industry in 2017. Yeah, you know, to be honest, I think it is almost a little bit of a cheating mechanism for Whole Foods because if they have some high-quality buyers in there, they know very intimately what has been selling or at least what has been selling better in that is trending upwards over the last half of 2016. So they can kind of foresee how 2017 is going to lay out as far as new products or as you mentioned, movements are concerned. But we do look forward and we see that they are seeing that coconuts widespread adoption in foods and the FDA's willingness to revisit this and really deem it as a healthy food is really paved the way for something that they are looking at in 2017 as something that may take off. Currently, you're seeing the coconut having a lot to do with health foods. We're talking about uses beyond just the oils that you may see at a whole food store, but there's more to that. They've been using everything of the coconut. It's been a very innovative solution as of late. They're looking at coconut flour tortillas and then coconut sugar. Everyone's been trying to find an alternative to the conventional cane sugar. And to be honest, coconut sugar does derive a lot of benefits. So this is something that they've been looking at. And of course, the oil that I mentioned, however, it's been in a growing list of beauty products. So this is something to keep our eye on, but something we won't necessarily be covering since it's not a food topic. You look forward on the list and you see things such as creative condiments. They're talking about using interesting condiments and using them in a way that's very unfamiliar to those that would ordinarily use them. This is really shying away from the typical hummus. They're looking towards things like habanero jam and pomegranate molasses and black garlic puree. These are things that, again, are very unconventional, but they seem to be seeing a trend, at least in the latter half of 2016 with. They also have date syrup, which I actually personally tried once. I was not actually a fan. But then also on their list, if you look, it says Mexican hot chocolate spreads. So this is something that's very specific and something that is definitely something that is new, something that hasn't already been around in the market. I I remember hearing about habanero jam at least two to three years ago, so this isn't something that's new to me at least, but a lot of things on here, and again, a little bit of some trends that have already been occurring in 2016. As with the rethinking their pasta, they're saying that pastas are more and more influenced by people that are trying to move towards plant-based a clean eating movements. They're talking about not having pastas having gluten in them. So you're trying to think of pastas that are created with rice and those kinds of things that are very new to the industry that have really been taking a chunk out of the traditional market shares. As far as pasta is concerned, you know, it's very much the same with condiments. A lot of these condiments that they're talking about that are unfamiliar to most 
buyers in a supermarket have been around for a while, just haven't been used on a wholesale basis. The same thing goes with, say, rice pasta, which has long been used in Thai cooking and other forms of cooking. You see brown rice pasta on the market a lot, and now it's starting to pick up steam. I found this interesting. North American dry pasta sales actually fell by 6% from 2009 to 2014. Marcus analyst Simone Baroque attributed this to two different things, increased gluten awareness, of course, and people attempting to avoid carbs. So these new pastas that are made with grains like corn, rice, or quinoa may help people to avoid both of these things, more so with the quinoa pasta, for example. There's a British company now, actually, Cauli Rice, that's making a rice-style pasta from cauliflower, and that's another thing Whole Foods mentioned in their releases. Pasta is made from vegetables and also fresh pasta as well. We shouldn't overlook that as that begins to grow in popularity. Going back to the condiments aspect, you mentioned the adobo sauces. They actually mentioned brand name Frontera specifically in the press release. Frontera, of course, is headed up by Chef Rick Bayless, who's a PBS personality. He's been vital in the introduction of more traditional Mexican flavors to American cuisine, pushing the envelope and that type of thing through his brand name and, of course, his restaurant locations. Many of our listeners may be familiar with his restaurant location in the Chicago O'Hare Airport, but interesting to see that they mention a brand name in this release. And I really think that the condiment interest was stoked by the sriracha interest and the hot sauce interest that we've seen over the last five to ten years. You know, we talked about sriracha on a recent podcast as far as Wendy's going all in on it, but also hot sauces like Cholula and Tapatio have been very popular among supermarket goers, and it's helped people to push the envelope a little bit into some of these condiments. You said that Whole Foods is looking for condiments beyond things like hummus. Well, hummus was relatively foreign to a lot of people here in the United States up until the last five years or so. Now it's become so popular that grocery stores will oftentimes have entire sections devoted to that. The same thing with mustard. It used to be that you could get only one or two different types of mustard on the shelf, and now there is a wide variety of mustards available on supermarket shelves. And you mentioned the fact that these buyers are often tied in with the industry at Whole Foods, so they can kind of see around the corner at what's going on. But I think one of the things that we can look at just from the outside looking in is some of the search trends from 2016 that suggest certain food trends for 2017. So between Whole Foods and Instacart, there is a deep partnership, and Instacart actually keeps track of some search trends, and so far in 2016, it really shows that there is going to be a very broad differentiation between what was popular in 2016 and what may be popular in the year to come. But you're looking at brands such as Halo Top, which is an ice cream alternative, New Barn Almond Milk Products, and RX Bar Snacks, they are way up right now. So if you're looking at their search history, you're seeing that they are still keeping along with the trends that Whole Foods had identified this last year. We're talking about searches for non-dairy up 222%. So that is an amazing feat. And then if you look at the top trends currently, you're still talking about gluten-free and then Whole30, which signifies a paleo diet. But then if you tie all of this in, really the indicators here, we're going to be looking at what they tried to identify in the past. So here we look at what Whole Foods has identified in the past as a top trend 
for this current year, you're saying that they were basically batting 50% and that they said that plant-based everything was going to be very important in 2016. They had fermented food and drinks, non-GMO foods. They said were going to be very popular. And then, of course, as we already mentioned, gluten-free flours, which continue to be of preference, especially for millennials. But then also flavors from the East they identified, as well as localization of sourcing. But then if you look at things that didn't really pan out to what they were seeing as a future trend, you're looking at uncommon meats and seafood, wine and cans we had talked about on this podcast, and then heirloom ingredients as well as Portuguese wines. These things that they identified really didn't take off in some substantial way, but this is going to be interesting in reflecting back to the 2017 trends last year and to see really what didn't pan out as far as these particular categories are concerned. Yeah, Whole Foods has done okay in the last couple of years. One of the things they mentioned in 2015 was nut butters, and those have absolutely taken off. They've also mentioned leafy brassicas in the past, so things like kale and broccolini and all of that, those have really taken off in addition to plant-based cheeses. But they mentioned grass-fed dairy as a trend that might take off, and what we've seen is actually a movement away from all types of dairy as people become more in tune to the fact that lactose intolerance affects a greater proportion of the population than once was thought. So we're moving away not only from dairy as a whole, but also grass-fed dairy towards non-dairy products and non-dairy substitutes for traditional foods like cheese. Overall, I think the conclusion that we can draw from this is Whole Foods has a decent idea of what's going to be a big food trend over the next couple of years, but some of this stuff just doesn't pan out. It's impossible for anyone to see the entire future, and I think part of this is because as analysts, we tend to undervalue some consumer desires. For example, a low price. You look at some of the food trends that didn't pan out out for Whole Foods, it's because those products command a much higher price than oftentimes what consumers are willing to pay. And also things like tradition play in as well. If a customer traditionally buys one product over another, then they're going to be more hesitant to go towards that new product that Whole Foods might spot as a trend. And we also sometimes tend to overvalue other consumer desires, such as things like caring about worker welfare. And I don't mean that consumers are completely unsympathetic towards things like worker welfare. It's just not as important as price in many cases. You see produce still coming from areas where they have issues with worker welfare and that type of thing, despite Whole Foods being one of the companies trying to ensure that all of their produce comes from farms with good growing practices. So there's a lot that goes into any one given food trend. And I do caution against taking everything as gospel, the idea that all 10 of these will for sure be food trends in 2017. Past history, at least past couple of years, tells us that about 60% of them will and maybe another 40% fizzle out. Moving on to the last story of the day, but keeping along with the theme of trends here, something that we've been seeing in the beverage industry really taking off through the latter half of 2016, an increase in energy and coffee drinks with protein in them. So this is something that, again, we have seen not only through advertising, but in the supermarket shelves. We see a coffee K-cup startup, Lono Life, has debuted a protein-infused Kona coffee, and they're trying to innovate to get this protein-infused trend in part of their portfolio. And you look at the energy drinks, too. Over in 2014 to 2015, we had several innovations, one being Monster Energy Drink, trying to infuse 
protein into their consumers' diets. And so this is one of the ways that they can really try to differentiate themselves. One of the other brands that we're going to talk about is 5-Hour Energy and how they've had a massive advertising campaign to boost sales with their energy drink that has infused about 10 grams of protein into their shot. So a lot to talk about here, Trent, but one differentiator here, at least for Lono Life, is how they've been adding protein or what the protein substance really is. That's correct. And in fact, the protein substance has a lot to do with that paleo diet that we were talking about earlier. One of the mainstays of the paleo diet is actually bone broth. And this product, Lona Life, is combining coffee with what they call hydrolyzed collagen, which is basically extracted in much a similar way as a bone broth is. Traditional bone broths are made from roasted animal bones that are simmered for extended periods for about 12 to 48 hours. The goal being to extract the nutrients, minerals, gelatin, collagen, and the amino acids. So they're taking the collagen out. The Lona Life co-founder, Jesse Coltes, told Food Business News that they tried to take the benefits out of the bone broth and put it into a more accessible beverage, which is coffee. Because Many people drink coffee, of course. Not that many people drink bone broth in comparison. And what's more is they're putting it all into a K-cup, which makes it even easier to access. They use 100% Arabica coffee beans, and their overall concoction is 100% natural. So it's a very interesting protein source we're used to seeing in terms of energy drinks and that type of thing. Protein sources coming from soy and from whey and even sometimes from dairy products but in this circumstance they're using hydrolyzed collagen which is also available for certain post-workout shakes that you can get from health food stores they're considerably more expensive than your typical protein powder mix and in fact some of the price points are over $100 per container Let's look at the energy drinks with protein and some of the other aspects or some of the other drinks on the market that are offering protein within. You mentioned 5-Hour Energy Layton. They released in August of this year a protein shot. These protein shots are 6 ounces in comparison to their conventional 5-Hour Energy bottles, which are just 2 ounces. They have four different flavors in these protein shots have 21 grams of protein and a total of 100 calories much of which are taken up by the protein of course protein has about four calories per gram so something to keep in mind there so they're trying to differentiate themselves based on a protein drink that is very quick to drink and also very low in terms of calories monster energy released a muscle monster drink back in 2014 and it's even something you're seeing with starbucks drinks which we'll talk about here in a second they're canned and bottled beverages they're beginning to add protein to them as well so as for 5-Hour Energy's protein shots, they did release them on August 1st of this year. So of 2016, they released flavors in berry, peach, mango, and grape extra strength and berry extra strength. But overall, they really are trying to compete with the likes of Gatorade Recovery Drink, which has been very popular. Obviously, they carry the Gatorade name. But as a lot of our listeners may remember, the G-Series that Gatorade introduced in 2010 was really the first time they had the ready-to-drink lineup, including a large amount of protein. So these recovery drinks are really going to be 
competing now with the likes of Five Hour Energy and these Monster Energy drinks. But as for the makeup of their protein source, the protein is derived from conventional sources. You had mentioned whey earlier. Whey isolate and vegetable proteins is what Five Hour Protein Shots utilize. Again, the drink only has a modest 100 calories. So for those really focused on the caloric count, it is fairly low still. That is a differentiator of Five Hour Drinks overall. But you're seeing that the overall shots are going to be about three times larger than their conventional two ounce shots that do not include protein, but they still have less than one gram of sugar. And they say they still provide a lot of taste there. In fact, they're going about this with the hashtag my five hour really indicating that there is a fitness craze and they are really trying to take advantage of this with these protein shots. But in late 2014 monster energy, as we had talked about just briefly earlier was the first one, the first energy drink maker to come out with something. And this was called muscle monster drink and they didn't really see a large level of success of course this is anecdotal monster energy is a publicly traded company but they do not break out the different products that they sell and so we can't really see the sales progress of this particular drink but we can look at the ingredients and kind of compare this to the other offerings we just mentioned a 15 fluid ounce can contains around 25 grams of protein so that actually is in line proportionally at least for the five hour energy and they were really trying to take advantage of the coffee craze obviously monster energy tries to have a lot of different coffee flavors but they have one in coffee flavor chocolate and vanilla and they utilize the milk-based proteins that you had mentioned earlier but overall this market really does show you that there is an increased interest in the protein market. There's a lot of people that are thinking that they don't have enough protein in their diet, even though there's not a lot of data to back that up, at least here domestically. But the data research firm 1010 Data states that over $500 billion so far this year has been spent on protein powders. And so that's a huge amount. And so they're really just trying to take a bite out of that market share, basically trying to add protein in where there are selling the drinks and so they're seeing this as an opportunity to get in and potentially bolster sales at least in the short term but again this reaffirms the idea that ready to drink makers want to join the fray and you see this through Amazon subscription data model where they're seeing that a larger amount of people in the United States have subscribed to recurring orders of protein powder so they're trying to get ahead of the curve even though it's already pretty much taken off but if you do look Trent there is a lot to look at as far as the plant-based proteins are concerned with these mixtures. And I think both of us are in agreement that these ready-to-drink protein beverages, whether they're brand extensions of current excelling brands or brand new to the market, I think that's going to be one of our biggest food trends of 2017 looking at the next year. You know, we talked about 2016 ready-to-drink coffees and ready-to-drink teas hitting the market in greater proportion. And if that was our beverage craze of last year, I could see protein-packed beverages being the craze, at least in the RTD market, in 2017. All right. Well, we conclude this edition of the Food Focus podcast by each telling you an item that we ate or tried that's new to the overall food market. And I kind of kept it in this energy drink and protein segment with Starbucks canned double shot spiced vanilla energy drink. It's a 15 ounce can. It's got 210 calories, three grams of fat. 
about 145 milligrams of caffeine, which lags behind your traditional 16-ounce or 12-ounce even cup of coffee, but still a decent amount of caffeine, including other items like taurine and that type of thing. And overall, I wasn't terribly impressed with it. The Spiced Vanilla is a brand extension that they were using for the holiday season. Typically, they carry things like mocha and white chocolate. Caramel and vanilla are two others, but the Spiced Vanilla is new for this season, trying to dovetail along with their Spiced Vanilla Cream Cold Brew that they're selling in stores. This drink was probably overly sweet. The 15 ounces became somewhat tough to get down after a while. There weren't too many coffee flavors there. And what stood out to me was the flavors on finish, which tended to be a little bit acidic, lemony, and they tasted a little bit more like a coffee drink. So overall, this is not something that I would recommend. The price point was $2.89. Well, I had a solid food. I didn't have a beverage this week. And keeping on with the theme of snack food, I really have been going to the store a little too often. With this, I got on sale the Newman's Own Peanut Butter Filled Newman O's, which is really just a knockoff of the Oreo cookie. So it's about the same size, at least the diameter is, but it has peanut butter filling instead of the typical white cream that you would normally get. What really struck me here was that this Newman's Own, of course, is made with all natural or organic ingredients. And so you're saying that the peanut butter cream-filled chocolate cookies made with organic wheat flour and organic sugar. So if you look at the rest of their ingredients, you're looking at all natural or organic ingredients as well. But the price point here for a 13-ounce bag was around $4.59. And the serving size is two cookies, and there's 13 servings per container here. So we're saying that basically per bag, there's about 26 cookies. And for each serving size, it's 120 calories, 5 grams of fat, 1.5 grams of saturated fat and 9 grams of sugar. Of course, sugar is something that a lot of consumers are paying attention to. But for me personally, I loved these cookies and I ate about half the bag. So that represented about 13, 14 cookies. So in the first sitting, that means strength that I ate 140 calories, 35 grams of fat and 63 grams of sugar. So my numbers aren't doing too good. In fact, I probably ate at least two days worth of allowance in the fat and caloric calorie content areas. But overall, you can check these out as well as other products from Newman's Own if you go to their website, newmanzone.com. And I did that for this podcast. But what really struck me there as well is that all of their products, not only these, but others that they have to offer are tied into a site locator. So if you type into a certain product there, you can see what stores nearest you have that type of product and what stores have that type of product. So I think that's a really convenient tool that other manufacturers need to utilize, at least when trying to get their name out there. I feel like their website was really up to date and really modern and something that a lot of food producers have kind of put off on the back burner. All right. Well, that'll do it for this edition of the Food Focus Podcast. Make sure and stay tuned for next week's iteration of the Retail Focus Podcast, our big year-end episode where we detail our top five and bottom five retailers of 2016, as well as bidding adieu to those that went bankrupt in calendar year 2016 as we summarize the year in review. Make sure and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and any other podcast delivery service, including Podbean. For Layton, I'm Trent. So long until next time. This has been the Food Focus Podcast. 
As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Thank you.